All right, well, let's get right into it. We can open our Bibles to James chapter 4. And I find that our text today really doesn't need much of an introduction, except maybe to say this, which is that if we will humble ourselves this morning to hear God's truth, we can trust then that by his grace, he is going to grow us in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. So today is going to be a humbling morning, but like I said, we get grace from Christ. And so we're going to get into it just beginning right at verse 1. James is going to ask another one of his great questions as he's been doing so throughout this letter. And so James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, last Sunday, we learned in James chapter 3 that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that comes from above. This is the wisdom of God. And that wisdom comes to us when we ask God for it in faith, and he, he gives it as a gift. But then there's the wisdom that is from below, and this is readily available and accessible to you at all times. You can just take it. It's, it's the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the flesh and the wisdom of the devil. But if you choose to operate under any other wisdom other than the wisdom of God, what you're inevitably going to find is chaos and corruption and confusion. You see, because wisdom of the world and of the flesh and of the devil is motivated by a heart of bitter envy and jealousy. And, and, and this kind of thinking, when we think with the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil, you're going to find every evil thing. Now, we obviously don't want that kind of thinking, as we looked at last week, because nothing good comes from it. And many of us know this by experience, right, that living for sin and for self and for Satan doesn't go well. And so we need a different kind of thinking. We need a mindset of God. And we learned at the end of the last chapter that when we came to Christ, we were made to be peacemakers. That peace gets planted within our hearts by the word of God and by the spirit of God. And then it brings forth this harvest of righteousness. Therefore, James is going to continue on with this idea even drilling deeper into how we need God's wisdom by asking that question, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Because if we're walking in the peace of God's wisdom, you, you shouldn't expect there to be any quarreling and fighting. But if we walk in the chaos of worldly wisdom or in the corruption of fleshly wisdom, or in the confusion of demonic wisdom, what we're going to find is we're going to find fights and quarrels. You know, why does the world have endless wars? I mean, how many war wars are actually going on in our world right now because of this very thing? Why is there the daily battle with our flesh? Why does the devil rage at God and mankind? What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? James gives us the answer. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? As James likes to do, as he brings it down to the level of the individual believer. Each one of us has to do the hard but honest 
and healthy work of introspection. We need to look within ourselves first and see where we may have participated in the quarrels and in the fights that exist among us. So is there a quarrel that you are in the middle of? What has caused it? Is there a fight that is going on among you? What has caused it? And the mature believer is gonna know the answer. They'll be able to say, is it not this, that my passions are at war within me? And remember that the meekness of wisdom looks at me and says, ugh, before it looks at you and says, ugh. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. See, James can ask these questions of others because he's first asked them of himself. So I have to ask you today, brothers and sisters in Christ, and and I've already been asking them all week of myself, do you recognize that sinful passions are still at war within your members? And can you admit that the trouble that you might be in is because you are still troubled with sin? See, what we often want to do is we want to blame the quarrels and the fighting on external circumstances and situations when what we should be doing is we should be admitting that the true cause of quarrels and fights is our own internal sin. See, the wise believer says this, I need to take responsibility. This is about me because of the way that I have been living for myself. If I am in a fight with someone, it's because one of us or both of us are not walking by the Spirit of God. If you are in a quarrel, it is because of some form of selfishness. And I don't know about you, but I have the daily sense within myself of an endless battle with sin and selfishness. I am a selfish person. And this definitely comes from the world right, in its wisdom and with the enticements that come from this earth. This definitely comes from the devil with the attacks and the temptations that come from our enemy, but where I really feel it is in my own flesh. I still have desires and passions within me that rage against my spirit. And I like what Warren Wearsby said about this. He says, the wars among us are caused by the wars within us. If you don't have peace with your fellow man, if, if, if you're in the midst of some fight or some quarrel with somebody, and, and in those horizontal relationships that you've got in your life, if there is an issue there, if it lacks peace, the issue is that in some way, it's off on the vertical relationship. In some way, you lack peace with God and yourself. You see, because if we have peace with God, then then we're gonna get along with those that are around us. And James says in verse two and three, in order to bring some some charges against us about how there's a war that is going on inside of us, he he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
You know, at the end of uh, service last Sunday, I was talking to Aaron Smith, and we were talking about how the Bible is like a mirror. You know, when you look into the mirror, you're going to get what you're going to get. And looking into the Bible, it gives us a true reflection of our spiritual condition. But I like what Erin says, as she was saying, when you look in the Bible, you got to do this. You got to look in the mirror and slap the first person you see. (laughs) So friends, as we go through these verses today, let's be looking within our own hearts first. Let's be examining ourselves to see maybe where we have missed this. Let's humble ourselves. So James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. See, Jesus said that if you have anger and hatred in your heart toward another person, you've already murdered them. See, the first murder in the Bible was because one brother desired and did not have what his brother had. And in this way, we murder one another in the family of God. We look at others with bitter envy and jealousy because we do not have what they have and we want it. And if we can't have it, then we wish that they lacked it. So one way to deal with this is we murder that person. Hopefully not literally, right? But do we not murder the reputation of a brother when we slander him? Do we not kill a friendship with a sister when we have jealousy toward them? We massacre peace in the body of Christ by sowing strife and division among us. Bitter envy and jealousy can turn a church into a bloodbath. And James says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, if the church is ever in a fight, churches are fighting with one another, children of God are fighting with one another, there's a deeper heart issue that is going on. And covetousness is a nasty sin. It is driven by fleshly lusts where you're never satisfied with what you have. There's always something more that you want to obtain and because you're not content with what you've received. And this discontentment, which is ultimately a dissatisfaction with yourself and with God, drives you to fight and quarrel with others. Why? Because you lack peace. Where there is no peace, there is fighting. We could say this then, that covetousness always leads to contentiousness. And James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so the issue of all of this you know, wanting and, and not having, not getting it, is that we fail to recognize what is the source of every blessing, Remember what James says, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming from the Father of heavenly lights. What we have is what God gives. But until we realize that, until we realize that every good and perfect gift must come down from God, what we're going to do is we're going to think that life is all about what we must obtain We got to go after it. And we will then think that everyone else is in the way of us trying to get what we want, and so we'll fight for it. And again, James says, you don't have because you don't ask. If you do not pray, then how will you receive the good gifts that come from God? 
I'm just gonna tell a funny story real quick to break up the intensity of what this morning already is from this text. One time I was in La Paz, Mexico, and I was walking along the beach talking to a friend about this verse, about not having because you don't ask. And he was saying, you know, I just really feel like I gotta ask for things more in life. And we're walking down the beach, and, and there was a group of people that had a lot of alcohol, and they had a jet ski. And he's like, I'm gonna ask if I can ride their jet ski. We happened to be in our hotel bathrobes walking down the beach, and he asked, can I, can I borrow your jet ski? And I'm like, sure. And so we were riding on the Sea of Cortez in the middle of the night in bathrobes on a jet ski. <laughs> it was really weird. But it, it, it's this principle, right? You have not, because you asked not. Now, we're not talking about jet skis, obviously. We're talking about deeper things here. So if I had enough time this morning to really dive into this verse, um, it'd be, I wish I could do that. But let me just simply say this. If you do not pray, don't expect to receive anything from God. There are things that I have in my life that are a direct result of prayer because I have asked and I have received. And then this also means there are things that I don't have in my life that are a direct result of not praying because I have not asked and so I have not received. You know, just as a suggestion, if you want to ever humble a person, talk to them about their prayer life. You know, this humbles me to think about how we ought to pray and yet we don't. And I've been a Christian for about 18 years and I still do not pray as I ought to. Now, I don't think there's ever gonna come a point in my life where I would say, you know, I've, I've really arrived. I think my prayer life is right where it needs to be. You know, we ought to always be growing. And I thank God that I have grown in my prayer life and part of it is recognizing what prayer really is, which is at its core, communicating with God, having conversation with God, talking to God. Sometimes we make prayer to be something so big when it really, God just wants to talk, talk with you. And James realizes that even when we do pray, we do not pray as we should. We pray at times with wrong motives. He says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, of course, this could be one of those verses where we would talk about how you know, if you're praying for a jet ski, you know, God might not give it, you know. You're praying for the lottery so you can, you know, live a selfish and luxurious lifestyle. Obviously, you know, preachers try to take this verse and say, you know, oh, you can't ask for a Lamborghini and God's going to give it to you. You know, obviously, <laughs> I hope you know that. But look, we could ask for things from God, even good things. But we ask with selfish motives. See, God is not going to answer a prayer that will be to your detriment. He loves you too much to give you everything that you think you want. You know, there's this idea I've been talking with some people about recently in the young adults who were talking about this. What, have you ever prayed a dangerous prayer? You know, dangerous prayers are where you, if you prayed it, you would know that God would answer it. But if he answered it, what would be required of you is sacrifice. You would have to change. 
See, a lot of times when we pray, we just pray for things that just fit right into how we're already living. We want God just to adapt to us rather than us adapting to God. So much of prayer is us being changed. We're not pulling God's arm to give us what we want. We bend ourselves in order that we would be what he wants. Prayer is that. And, and so I just have to ask, what do you not have that God wants you to have? And if you were to just ask, God would be pleased to give it to you. Let me just give one suggestion. Asking for wisdom is a really great place to start. James chapter one said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him come to God and ask in faith because God gives liberally without reproach to those who ask for more wisdom. If you ask God for wisdom in faith, not double-minded, God is pleased to give it to you. That's a great starting place. Ask God for humility. God is pleased to give that. There's so many things that we could pray, but we have to be willing to be changed to receive it. And then verse four, James really brings it up a notch. Look at what he says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When was the last time you were called an adulterous person? You know, James sounds kind of like an Old Testament prophet here. He's dropping some language. And now, we know that adultery, in the literal sense, is committed by a man or a woman who is in a marriage. It's when a man or a woman in marriage has a lustful relationship with another man or woman that they're not married to. And why does adultery happen? Because of this selfish heart of desiring what you don't have and coveting what you cannot obtain because you fail to ask God for it. You fail to ask God to give true joy in the pleasure of the marriage that you're already in. And so you fall into sin. You commit adultery. It's an interesting thing that the world, the flesh, and the devil tries with everything to get you to have sex before you're married to seek pleasure outside of marriage. Then the world, the flesh, and the devil tries with everything to get you to not have sex once you are married. Or again, to seek pleasure outside of marriage. Why? Because marriage is God's wisdom. It's a good gift from above. There's an attack on marriage constantly from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, because James likes to ask questions, I'm gonna ask a question. Do you have a great marriage if you're married? Or, or if you're not married, do you wanna be married? And what are you doing to get to that place? And I know this hits on a hard place for some people. Maybe you are single, maybe you are married and your spouse isn't a believer, maybe you're divorced, maybe you know that one of the people in the relationship right now is having an adulterous relationship and you're just trying to figure it out, whatever it is. But the question is, do you have a great marriage? I hope you do. I want to have a great marriage. But if we don't have a great marriage, maybe it's because we haven't asked for one. 
or the prayer has been for your spouse to change rather than asking God for you to change. Why are there fights and quarrels in marriage? Is it not this, that one of you or both of you are selfish in the relationship? Marriage is a war on selfishness. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to your husband or to your wife. It speaks to the mystery of Jesus in his church. And, and so while I'm speaking here right now to, to literal marriages or literal adultery, James is speaking more to a spiritual marriage that we have with God. He's speaking to spiritual adultery. When we play the harlot with the world, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, the world is like a seducing prostitute offering herself to you in hopes that in your steps you will foolishly wander off of God's well-lit path and into her arms. But church, we have been married to Jesus. We are the church, the bride of Christ, and we have been purchased with his blood. We belong to Jesus. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We no longer belong to the world. And, and praise God, we no longer belong to the devil we have been saved by Jesus, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and adopted to the Father. We have been made friends of God through the reconciliation of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And look, there's a great difference between being friendly to the world and being friends of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We can have the Father's love for the world, which is for the world to be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but once you've believed the gospel and you've come to know God, we're now to have a disassociation with all that is in the world and all that the world lives for because we now live with eternal purposes. We have eternal life and we live for the kingdom of God and not for this world. We are to be in the world but not of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And so, who do you belong to? Who are you married to? Where's your friendship? You either belong to the Father, and you're married to Jesus, and you're a friend of the Spirit, or you belong to the world, you're married to yourself, and you're a friend of the devil and you cannot love both. You cannot have two lovers. That would be adultery. See, spiritual adultery is when we say, oh yeah, I love God, but you're fooling around with the world. Verse five says, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? 
Look, I, re I remember what it was like before I was born again. When I could do whatever seemed right in my own eyes. I, 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 it didn't always work out that well, <laughs> right? But, but for the most part, I could do whatever I wanted. Live however I wished. Which for me was to ultimately seek pleasure. Seeking pleasure was my end goal in life and it led me into more and more sin. I was selfish. Still am a little bit. A lot of it. Christ is sanctifying me. But when I came to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I came to know him and he is my God and he is my savior and he has filled me with his Holy Spirit. And because the spirit of God dwells inside of me, um, I'm changing. I'm the temple of the living God and God does not share company with, with, with sin and the world and Satan. He's purifying me and, and because the spirit of God dwells in me, I no longer can just do whatever seems right in my own eyes. I can't just live for my own passing pleasures because I've been made to live a life that is pleasing to God, a life of faith and obedience to God's word. And so as you begin to learn God's promises and all the good things that he gives to provide true and lasting pleasure, over time, as you walk in this grace and in this peace that comes from God, there's this jealous yearning of God over the spirit that dwells within us. Now, there's differing views over whether that word there in verse five, uh, that word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit or to our spirits. But either way, it's gonna preach. See, God yearns over the spirit that belongs to him that he has made to dwell in us. And you have been made in the image of God, which means that that you have to recognize that your spirit was made to worship him. And if you have been renewed by the spirit of God, then you know, like it says in Romans chapter eight, that his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And if you've had that experience, you know what I'm talking about, where you know that you belong to God and you can't just do whatever you wanna do anymore. You gotta live for Jesus now. You don't, you don't got to, you get to. But sometimes doesn't it feel like you got to? But you get to live for Jesus and his spirit yearns jealously over you. And look, at times, I still grieve and quench the spirit of God that is within me. Because I choose to live for selfish sin rather than to live for God and others. And the more and more that I know, <laughs> the more I know that living by the spirit of God is the only way for a Christian to live. To try to do anything else is miserable for the child of God. You've tried it, right? I have. Where if, if, you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a born again child of God and you go try to wander into the world and live for sin and live for your own pleasures, it's miserable. Why? Because you have enough, you have enough of Jesus in you that you can't actually really enjoy that sin. But then the reverse is terrible, is that you've got enough sin in you that you can't even really enjoy Jesus. So you're miserable both ways. So if you are saved, if you're a child of God, the spirit of God dwells in you, there is only one way to live, and it's lived, <laughs> to live for God, to live toward him and for him. And, and, and isn't this some intense stuff? And... and Look, if you're hearing what I'm saying right now and, and if you want to argue with James for being 
so bold and so truthful about our condition, you know, telling you that when you walk away from God and cozy up with the world, you're being an adulterer? Is that too much? If you think that it's too much and that the Bible is being too harsh, the very fact that you wanna argue with the scriptures about your wretched condition tells you that there's a problem in you. Is it of no purpose that we have the scriptures to tell us how to part with the world and with the flesh and with the devil and it tells us how to live for God which is what we were made for? Are we that self-righteous that we cannot be confronted with the scriptures about our sinful condition? I hope you've seen yourself in the mirror this morning. And, and you probably don't like what you see. Ugh, right? But James is giving us an accurate view of how we've been living. And, and the best thing, though, is that you don't have to stay there. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you know what? When you look in the mirror, you don't have to slap yourself in the face. Jesus slaps you with his grace if you humble yourself. Jesus wholly recreates you. Look at verse six. Because we had to be brought low in order to really capture verse six. So if you've been humbled by the things you've heard this morning, this should hit you like a ton of bricks but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Those are the sweetest words on the page. You see, we would be absolutely lost and undone if we were left to our own devices. If we just had to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and you just stop sinning now, <laughs> right? We need God. We need his grace, and thanks be to God that God gives more grace. And in order to receive it, you gotta be brought low. You gotta come to the point to where you realize, I need grace. Grace is only given to those who say, I need it. And confess that what it cost it came, that Jesus Christ died for us. And in fact, Paul says in Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And this gives God glory. The more you sin, the more God will give you his grace. Now, does that mean that we should continue in sin? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not, Paul says. So I'm so glad that when I look in the mirror, <laughs> I, I do, I, I see my, my condition. I, I look at this book and I, I see... You adulterous people, you cleanse your hands, you sinners. And, and I recognize this book reveals my wretched condition. And yet, at the same time, it tells me how deep God's love is for me and the grace that he has shown to me. And the beauty of his grace will only be shown on the darkest backdrop of my sin. And so... If you're a Christian, you need to admit that you need to be corrected. You need sin to be removed from your life more and more. And God is so kind, but God is also severe. If, if God did not call us to repentance, God would not be kind. If you refuse to be corrected, you are not God's kid. 
See, it is in the very fact that we get brought low and God disciplines those whom he loves. He corrects those so that we'll be made to look more and more like Jesus as he gives us more and more of his grace. But you gotta humble yourself. He gives more grace. So how do you get more grace? Well, the rest of these verses just flip this whole thing up on its head. This is just the beautiful truths of now how we get to press into God. It says, therefore... It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You ever, as a kid, played with magnets? And how when you turn magnets on the sides that attract, they just stick together. But if you flip the magnet around and you try to put the, the resisting sides, it's like you can't squeeze them together because there's, there's that, you know, you know what I'm talking about? And... Um, and that's an illustration to me, I feel, in my spiritual life, where, where if I'm feeling distant from God, or I, I'm not drawing near to God, the issues with me, I, I'm turned away from God. I'm either looking at myself, I'm looking at my, the world, I'm tempted by the enemy, whatever it is, and, and the moment that I turn around and I draw near to God, it's like, you just get connected to the Lord. But you gotta turn. That's what repentance means, to turn around, to make an about face, to change your mind and to change the course of your direction of which you've been walking. And, and when you do, when you humble yourself and you repent and you turn to the Lord, it, you just, you draw near to God. But God resists the proud. There's resistance if you're gonna stay proud and defiant to God. But if you humble yourself and you recognize, oh, how much you need God, there is connection. James then says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Come under. That, that word submit means to, to belong within rank, that God is God and you are not. Did you forget that? He is the creator and you are the creature. He is the Lord and you are the servant. He is the father and you are the child. You're to come within his ring. You're to come under him, to submit yourself to him. But guess what? God never forces you into submission. We have a will to choose. And if in our will we choose to submit to his love and to his care and to his leadership and to his kindness, oh, how sweet it is. And then James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, this is very important to understand that in our uh, battle with the world, the flesh, and the enemy, there's different tactics. You know, with the flesh, the Bible says flee. Get out of Dodge. Flee youthful lust. Get out of there. Get out of that situation. Run like Joseph, right? But when it talks about the, the enemy, the devil, it says resist the devil. Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God and stand firm, resist him, and guess what? He will flee from you. The devil scrams from you when you stand in Christ and you stand in his grace. And then James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love this verse. It's, it's one of the simplest promises of scripture, there is a one-to-one -one correlation here. You know, you can have as much of God as you want. You can have as much of his grace as you want. 
You can come close to him. You can have intimacy with him. You can have friendship with him, fellowship, closeness, whatever you want to call it. You, you can be in the nearness of God, and there is a direct correlation of you drawing near to God and him drawing near to you. But look at this. God would never say this to us. He'd never say, uh, you, that, why don't you stay back a little bit? Like, that's close enough, <laughs> you know? You, yeah, you, you sin a little bit too much. You ask for forgiveness, like, quite a bit. So why don't you stay out there in the outer ring? Because, uh, yeah, I don't really like your presence that much, right? But how do sometimes we think that that's how God sees us? Oh, those people can be near the presence of God. That They're real intimate and close to him. But me, I'm, I'm back here because God wants me back here. No way. God wants you near. See, God would never say to us, you stay back there. But we say that to God all the time. God, you can come close to my life here. Oh, but not there. You stayed back from there. You stay out of my marriage. You stay out of my sexuality. You stay out of my business, out of my work, out of my play, out of my entertainment. You, you stay out of these areas. You can come to church with me, but you stay out of these areas. Stay back, Lord. How does that make God feel? See, if you want God, God gives himself to you. But you've got to give yourself to God. See, God if you feel distant from God, God has not moved. You moved. God never changes. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is constant. You're the variable. I'm the variable. We have not because we ask not. And when we ask, are we really asking for him or are we asking God as if he's some genie to grant us our requests with no real relationship? He wants relationship with you. He wants to be close to you, near to you, intimate fellowship with you. He's looking for friendship. Draw near to God. And how? And at this point, I, I would want to say, you got you to gotta pray more. You got to read your Bible more. You got to fellowship with Christians. You should come to church Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Repeat it. Right, you, you, you should repent and you should have humility. And, and I'm not dissing on any of those things. I think that prayer and reading the Bible and coming to church are all wonderful ways of drawing near to God. But guess what? You can come to church all week long and yet you, you honor God with your lips and yet in your heart he's far from you. So, so to have this nearness and closeness drawing into intimacy with God, it's relationship. Bring the real you to the real Jesus. Tell him that you want him. Tell him that you need him. And he will draw near to you if you draw near to him. And then in verse 8, it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You came to church today to be called an adulterer, a sinner, double-minded. You know that word double-minded is to be two-souled. Like you've got two souls within you. But look, guys, the closer we draw near to God, the more convicted we will be of our sinful condition. And the more willing we become to wash our hands in his mercy. We are sinners, and that is what we are. That is what I am. We are sinners, 
But until we recognize ourselves to be that, I love how Paul says, I'm the chiefest among them. That is what we are. But until we recognize that we are sinner, you cannot be saved by grace. The more you realize you're a sinner, the more grace he gives. Sin is on our hands. Sin is in our hearts. Sin is in our minds. So cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, and set your mind on God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. See, the Holy Spirit does a particular work. It's called conviction. And if you have the Spirit of God and he's convicted you of sin today and righteousness today and judgment today, that's his work. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin is the truth about us. Righteousness is the truth about God. Judgment is when those truths come together. And either your sins get judged on Jesus at the cross, or you'll have to be judged in your own sins, and I don't think you want that. For those of us who know that Jesus has paid it all, that sin was judged on the cross when God gave his only begotten son, Jesus, to die, that that he hung upon that cross, that he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was slapped, There were nails in his hands and nails in his feet, and it tells us of how much he loves us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, very similar words to how James ends here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I was talking to a friend recently as we've been going through James. Hasn't it been hitting us right between the eyes? And uh, that like, as people walk out of church, they're like, man, another heavy one, (laughs) you know? And it is. James really brought the heat on us today, but guess what? He also brings us grace, but God gives more grace. He loves us, but you won't know what righteousness is until you've been wretched. You will not know what it is to rejoice until you have mourned. You will not know what it is to laugh until you have wept. Your laughter will be turned to mourning and your joy will be turned to gloom. The person who has never wept over their own sin knows no true joy. Amen? Let's pray and we'll invite the worship team up. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your salvation. I thank you, Lord, that you are our God, you are our Savior, and Lord, you humbled yourself to die on a cross, to pay for these sins that we could never pay ourselves. You have removed our debt far from us as far as the east is from the west. Lord, you have paid it all in the work that you accomplished on the cross, and you defeated sin, death, and the devil on the cross by raising from the dead. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, Lord. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand up and then we're going to sing this song that is very powerful. Um, And I want to read the lyrics before we sing it together because I want you to really hear it and then I want us to really sing it out because it's so true. So you can stand up with me and I'm going to read this final song. And after reading this song, here's where the invitation comes. We've heard in the word that if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you.
and, and we will have the steps open for you to come and kneel in prayer if, if God leads you. There's something about when we, we draw near to God in a physical way, it corresponds with what God's doing with our spirits. And so if you've never raised your hands in worship or gotten on your knees in worship, there's something about that that is a drawing near to God, humbling yourself in the presence of the Lord. We're also gonna have our prayer team up here on the sides to pray with any, anyone who needs prayer. If, if you need prayer, first and foremost, if, if you need Jesus to save you, you haven't come to a personal relationship with him, we wanna pray with you. Uh, if you need prayer for your marriages, if you need prayer for, um, for just confession and, and repentance, like we, um, as I said last week, um, coming for prayer, kneeling at the steps is not weakness, it's meekness. And so let me read this scripture and let it, this settle into our hearts. It says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's sing that to the Lord. Let's sing it with our whole heart as we come to the Lord. As we draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Amen? Let's worship. <laughs>